Okay, fantastic. Hey, Plastic Pills uh, listeners. I'm here uh, today uh, with a very special guest, actually. Uh, this is Aaron, and he is one of the founders of the Institute for Christian Socialism and an editor of The Bias magazine. Uh, for those of you who do not know, uh, ICS uh, and The Bias have made it their mission uh, to actually counteract some of the right-wing interpretations of Christianity and provide a more vibrant uh, and altruistic uh, conception of Christianity that's appropriate to the left for the 21st century. So thanks a lot, Aaron, for coming on. We've been wanting to have you here for a while. Thanks for having me, Matt. I've wanted to talk to you for a while, so I really appreciate the opportunity. Perfect. So I have a couple of questions for you, but why don't we just start with the most basic one. Uh, what initially inspired uh, the creation of the Institute for Christian Socialism and the Bias magazine? Uh, was it a personal event, a political transition, some combination of the two? And you just saw some evangelical ad and that was the last straw? <laughs> yeah, plenty of evangelical ads to, to, to build some impetus for this project. Uh, and that continues to happen, in fact. No, um, if I could put it very simply, um, the Institute for Christian Socialism uh, was formed um, out of a profound frustration that many of us had with the fact that there was no real voice or organizing space for Christians who wanted to mount a consistent uh, and sustained anti-capitalist critique of society. Um, and in and, and a sense that to do that, um, one would need more than simply, you know, a blog, uh, even a standalone magazine. Uh, but that in order to uh, sustain and build a movement around that, uh, we would need something like an institute, right? An institute um, uh, involves questions of people, right? People power, uh, money, um, and the sort of network uh, resources, organizing tools, that are necessary to actually build a successful and long-lasting uh, Christian anti-capitalist movement. Um, and so uh, we, we were um, launched in 2019 around just that mission, essentially to help um, educate and then organize Christians uh, on the left, right? And, and to say that is not to say that every single person who encounters ICS or gets involved is themselves a committed leftist or socialist. Many of them are. But kind of the, the, the core concern and anxiety many of them have is that something is profoundly wrong with the capitalist order and they want to fix something about it. And they would prefer not to do that simply through moral denunciations, right? Uh, merely through sectarian solutions, through uh, the church. Uh, but they'd like to do something that, that affects long-lasting political change. Um, and so that, that, that's broadly how it came together. Uh, really out of, out of a concern not just to do something temporary, uh, to make a small splash, but in fact, to contribute to, I think, um, a landscape change, um, to, to fundamentally work towards retaking um, uh, the landscape of American politics and, and, and disrupting um, the monopolization of religion and especially Christianity by the conservative, uh, you know, neoconservative and neoliberal right. Um, and so in that sense, we're, you know, you asked what its genesis was, what, what the sparking event for it was. I think in many ways that, you know, ICS is not, um, ICS owes itself to um, political energies and movements that preceded it, right? I think it's safe to say something like ICS may not have resonated or been as successful as it has been if we had launched even five years ago. But I think there's sufficient political right. frustration, anxiety, um, around many, uh, you know, uh, recent events in our past, the Great Recession, 
uh, the uh, disastrous wars, right? Um, the experiences of precarity under neoliberal capitalism. And then most recently, kind of the Bernie phenomenon, right? That there was a real viable political voice um, giving expression to the concerns a lot of young people have who are no longer riding that wave of, you know, the, the, the beautiful, you know, post-war capitalist boom. Um, and so, you know, th th there's a certain energy that we're riding, I think. Um, and now Christians have, I think, much more interest in getting politically organized um, and mounting a real sustained challenge to it. Um, so that, that's kind of how it explained how it came about. I can certainly give more detail about like the folks involved and then kind of how our uh, own personal histories led to ICS for sure. Well, we'll, we'll definitely get into that. But just before we do, uh, you know, we're a left wing podcast. Uh, a lot of our listeners uh, are Marxist uh, or at least aligned, uh, and frankly, irreligious uh, or even anti-religious. Uh, and, you know, growing up, I was raised Roman Catholic. Uh, so were a few of us. Uh, I was very devout when I was younger, but one of the reasons I apostized uh, for a period uh, was just most of the Roman Catholics I knew were pretty big C conservative, uh, and almost all the Catholics I met who were big R religious were big C conservative. Uh, and at some point I just said, you know, I had enough, you know, I can't deal with it any longer. So can you tell us a little bit about what the reception of ICS has been? Uh, because honestly, just looking back at my own kind of history, I would have really liked something like this uh, when I was you know, growing up. It would have been really refreshing. Uh, kind of wish it was there in hindsight, but you know that's the way things go. So, how have Christians responded to this generally? That's a great question. Um, I, I share with you, Matt, th this feeling that um, had there been something like the Institute for Christian Socialism, our relationship to our faith and our religious past may have been very different. Uh, yeah. <laughs> to some people, I'll say, you know, simply ICS saved my faith. That's kind of simplistic and. That, that kind of looks over the fact that, you know, faith for me is an ongoing struggle every single day. And there are many incentives, many days uh, to, to just look at the whole project of Christianity, its relation to politics and say, it's just not worth it. But that said, I think ICS for me has been uh, very integral in, in um, restoring my faith in a kind of politically radical uh, socialist Christianity, or at least the possibility of that. Um, so I agree with you there. I mean, you're right. One of the biggest and hardest questions for us to answer, both as we launched ICS and then as we, uh, you know, are engaged in the daily work, right, of uh, publishing and and speaking and intervening, uh, who is our audience, right? One of the difficulties of ICS is that um, in creating the institute, you both have to respond to an audience and create an audience at the same time, right? So, so, you know, to get back to some of the earlier personal stories, you know, a lot of us had real concerns and, and critiques of our experience of academic spaces and church spaces um, where there were nominal commitments and, and oftentimes very pronounced commitments in the pulpit and in the classrooms to social justice, to progressive values, but very little material investment in those things, right? Very little material analysis of those things and certainly no willingness to actually criticize capitalism um, in a forthright way. Um, and so a, a, lot of, a lot of the genesis of ICS, again, was out of this frustration. So there's a small audience in the sense of those people who were involved in ICS at the start wanted to say, there's nothing out there for people like us who feel so frustrated with this reality. We want to do something about it. So, you know, our, our first audience was ourselves, right? Trying to collaborate <laughs> and think about um, how do we make the sort of um, developing commitments and critiques that we have public and draw people in. But then we realized once we launched ICS that there were a lot of people out there, um, and especially I would say not even people who would immediately identify as Christian leftists or socialists, 
but rather people who had been profoundly burned out by the church or abused by the church or traumatized by other Christians. Um, and so certainly, you know, social media is uh, no perfect indicator of who your audience is. But in the last two and a half years since we've launched, it's quite clear to us that like the people who are attracted to us and engage with us on social media, reach out to us directly, are very often people who have had um, a negative uh, racialized experiences of being a Christian, right? Queer and trans folk, uh, people who've been kicked out of their family's home, right? For heterodoxy, right? Or things like yeah. that. Um, so people who have been profoundly alienated um, and, and are by no means um, closed off to the idea of Christianity, but to them, it's basically become something that they practice individually and they really can't find any kind of materialization of their own sense of the radical Jesus, right? And the kind of radical Christianity that they might espouse. Um, and so I think it's a lot of people who are just looking for for a, an institution or organization that really is willing to make good on these claims of a radical Jesus. Um, I think one of the other harder things is like, it is difficult in our current climate to make any kind of like strong political claims about Christianity just because it has been so co-opted by the right. I think a lot of people are very afraid, uh, Christians, I should say, are very afraid to claim the banner of socialism um, precisely because any sorts of bold radical claims um, run the risk, right, of playing into the hands of right-wing Christianity, right? And so this right. is one of, one of the ways that, you know, what Mark Fisher describes as capitalist realism has taken such a strong hold in America. Um, it, it seems better to kind of couch one's critique of capital and injustice by, you know, um, kind of organizing around uh, banners like progressivism, right? Radicalism, anarchism, things like that. Um, but but there are real risks, I think, to take it on the socialist banner. I mean, among many, uh, it's hard to get funding for an institute if you're calling yourself a socialist, right? Um, it's hard to develop strong associations with certain folks that might be privately inclined to support you. Um, but, you know, so, so that, that's certainly, um, you know, a, a, a big risk that goes along with it. Um, I think, you know, um, one of the other difficulties is trying to help people locate where is this Christian socialist tradition, right? Um, I think a lot of people who have come to engage ICS um, again, have this experience of being profoundly alone, the, the, the sense that there must be no one who thinks like me, no one who's come before me. Um, and so where do I go, right? So so part of our task has been to try to reconstruct what we call kind of the Christian socialist tradition or the socialism of the gospel, as, as we've dubbed it, um, to look to those figures who have practiced uh, radical economic, political, and social justice those who have always uh, stood sometimes within the church, but very much outside of it to critique it from the outside uh, and, and call it to the, the virtues of justice and mercy in a political way. Um, and, you know, one of the things we have to, to do to, to successfully organize Christians is uh, remain strongly ecumenical. So ICS is not um, an organization that demands adherence to one denomination or any denomination, right? Um, and we also have to maintain a kind of ecumenical approach to the secular left, right? So that there's these kind of like constant temptations, I think, with Christians who want to appear radical or anti-capitalist and really double down on their own theological tradition to do that um, or and or to avoid the contributions and the critiques and the education that the secular left uh, can provide, right? And so it's having to kind of like uh, thread that needle, right? Constantly remaining ecumenical, both theologically 
uh, and politically is super important. That is the only way that we can actually build power, though, I think is a successful Christian anti-capitalist institute. Yeah, I know. I absolutely agree with you, especially given the hegemony of the American right, not just in the United States, uh, but in terms of the influences had on conservatism generally. There needs to be a counter push uh, for Christians and other religious types uh, who feel differently. Uh, but I'm, the kind of challenge as I see it, and this is a more conceptual question, uh, especially when trying to make Christianity appealing to leftists, is that since at least the 18th century, many, many different um, conservatives with reactionary dispositions, even virulently reactionary dispositions, have tended to argue for everything from throne and altar style conservatism with Joseph de Maistre, right down through the evangelical right with its associations uh, with Trumpism and the Republican Party, uh, and the belief that, you know, the gospel tells us that we should work, be thrifty, uh, put our pennies aside, and if you do well, then God will reward you in this life. Uh, these things have been tremendously influential. So I imagine at some point, it has to feel a bit like scaling a mountain uh, to try to actually make the case for Christian socialism. Can you talk a little bit about how your interpretation of the Christian message is different and why you think it will resonate uh, beyond just the fact that, of course, you think it's the correct interpretation of the Christian message? <laughs> right, right. That's a really great question, Matt. Um, yeah, I can take a stab at that. So actually, I think the first place that I would start is by honestly admitting actually, that the dominant forms of Christianity across the globe uh, have often been overwhelmingly reactionary. Uh, and, and not just Christianity in the modern era, though you're certainly right to point out that there, there's a kind of fusion that happens in the modern era that brings them into very close alliance with reactionary thought. Um, you know, the, the, the entire project of European Christianity, I would say, is responsible for an outrageous legacy of violence and colonialism and slavery and one that has profound effects even today. So in other words, um, I think we need to avoid this, this kind of common and understandable clapback that you find sometimes in progressive Christian circles. Um, and it's one that conservative Christians engage in too, where it's like, well, sure, you know, a lot of Christians have done terrible things, but that wasn't true Christianity or they weren't real Christians. Um, but, but the fact is that some of the most grievous evils of the last two millennia have been committed by practicing Christians and the church uh, and people who profess Christian orthodoxy too, right? They held very strong views, uh, theological views on human sin and failure. And they use those very doctrines uh, to engage in products of violence and domination and class oppression. And they develop very you know, sophisticated rationales for this violence using the resources of theology and, and Christianized philosophy. Um, you can look at recent works uh, like like that done by Willie James Jennings on, on race, right? Uh, his thesis is that like racial formation didn't have its origins um, just in colonialism, but also had a theological beginning that fused it to the Western colonial project. Um, you can pick really any systemic um, world-making evil over the last two millennia, and you'll find Christianity lurking there somewhere, you know, racism, uh, slavery, um, anti-Semitism, violence against LGBTQ people, women. And it's not even lurking there. In many cases, it's explicitly providing the very frameworks and rationales that legitimate the domination of these people. Um, I think one theologian I would point people to of your podcast that's really important on this front is Marika Rose. Uh, she has this great book. It's it's fairly complex academically, but but it's, it's important. And, and other folks like... Um, Dean and Matt at the Magnificast podcast have spoken with her about this idea of Christianity as a kind of ongoing failure and, and, and a need to grapple with that failure. 
Um, but Christianity, she says, has always struggled with and fought against supremacist theology since its very inception. Um, and, and sort of every new theological current is trying to find a way out of these impasses, right? Trying to assume some normative standard, pristine Christianity. But I think, honestly, I would say, Matt, one of the most important starting points is like Christian leftists, if they want to be honest about this legacy, have to actually acknowledge the damage and wreckage of Christianity. We have, we have to acknowledge that there is failure there. Um, but there's more that you can say, I think. I mean, ICS obviously exists, and we, and we think that there's something important and vital about Christianity um, in the radical life of Jesus, the kind of political love he embodied, um, and, and the love that has been extended by many of his followers, uh, and the contribution, I think, that that kind of political love can make to the left. Um, one thing I would point to is actually a book that the um, members who are part of ICS's membership program are currently reading uh, by Obrey Hendricks. It's called The Politics of Jesus. Um, and, and Obrey's book is profound because what it does is basically make the case that um, in both Jewish and Christian scripture, the, the point at which God makes his most explosive entrance onto history, right, uh, which is his intervention in the uh, oppression of the Hebrews under uh, Pharaoh um, and is basically a political intervention, right? So this is not just some God who responds to the piety, right, of the Israelites, but instead the very reason God appears and intervenes is to free uh, these people from their political plight as an oppressed social class. Um, and in fact, Israel as a people often in the Hebrew scriptures constantly refuses uh, a God, right? Uh, and God continues to intervene to, to free them, not just from some vague spiritual bondage, right? But from actual oppressors. And even as the life of liberated Israel develops after the Exodus, their whole system of uh, political rule is set up around a system that resists monarchs and hereditary rulers. Um, and as that goes on in the life of Jesus, that is the very context in which Jesus um, uh, begins his own ministry, right? Uh, the, the Hebrew people are now an oppressed colonial subject under Rome. And Jesus' experience would have been that of, you know, uh, his, his parents walking the roads of Rome, seeing Jews uh, crucified on the, on the crosses uh, for rebelling. Um, it would have been one in which he was he was opposed to an aristocratic hereditary caste, basically, of priests who had acquiesced to Rome's rule and oppressed their own people. Um, his challenge was directly to this religious political order that had refused God's sovereignty, right? The one God that Israel worships um, and, and a resistance to the use of wealth and power and privilege um, that were used to lay these heavy burdens on the Jewish people. In other words, I think the, the very first thing one has to look at is the fact that Jesus's life was thoroughly political. He grew up in a thoroughly politicized context and all of his interventions, right, as a teacher, as a minister, as a kind of political radical, radical took place in a very specific uh, political and social structure of violence and oppression. Um, you know, uh, the liberation theologian Gustavo Gutierrez talks about this 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 pre very pervasive um, idea of Jesus that is is I would say no more pronounced than it is in America, right? Especially in the kind of evangelical uh, portrayal of Jesus and spirituality. 
you know, Jesus becomes kind of just a script, he says. He's deprived of any historical human content. He's there just saying things that are really just recitations of other theological truths. There's no real body. Yeah, I mean, he's kind of defanged is the impression you get from the book. That's right. That's exactly right. Um, but it's really hard once you kind of take pause and imagine and reconstruct Jesus's own context, right? That Jesus is not, you know, um, some kind of... Um, you know, easygoing wisdom teacher. He's not confrontational, right? In some general way, he's not just curmudgeonly. He is not someone who enjoys exposing people's individual sins, like my evangelical <laughs> ancestors told me. His confrontations, his interventions, and his struggles were always focused and specific against the rich, against the Roman imperial order and those who acquiesced to it. And they were always interventions on behalf of the vulnerable and the excluded and the outcast. And so I think it's super important, as Gutierrez says, to realize that like the kind of love that Jesus announces and that he experiences from his father, it, it's not some kind of abstraction, right? It's not some kind of sentimental truth that preserves, I think what Gutierrez calls a fictitious harmony, right? It's a love that calls people into solidarity with the oppressed. So this is a kind of love that actually calls you into, forces you into the process of liberation, um, and the way Jesus goes about this is his, his universal love means that he sides with the oppressed and his struggle against oppressors is not motivated out of a hatred, right, or ambition. Uh, in fact, the act of freeing oppressors from their power to oppress is itself an act of love, the kind that Jesus calls us to. So I think it's really important to say that, like, the example and the life of Jesus show us that, like, he is not an abstraction, um, in fact, the, the center focus of Christianity, the person of Jesus Christ, is thoroughly political. Um, and, and he calls us to a form of love that is thoroughly engaged, thoroughly material, has profound social and material implications. And it's, it, it's, it's a kind of love that he calls us to that is very um, insistent that we must free those oppressed and to free those who are oppressing is also a kind of political love, if that makes sense. Um, there, there are all kinds of, you know, structures of theology, readings of scripture, uh, for, you know, formations of church denominations and, and, the, and the power that, that they seek to form with other political parties that certainly militate against this reading, this radical reading of Jesus. But I think it's just um, impossible to ignore once you have a holistic view of both the Hebrew and Christian scriptures that that is the whole context of God's intervention, especially in the person of Jesus Christ that he is committed from, from the beginning and even to the cross to justice, and he dies at the hands of political oppressors, right? Jesus doesn't go to the cross and die there because of some vague, you know, sentimental message about love. He doesn't go there necessarily because of, because of his teaching, but he goes there because of certain life, that teaching and that life is ordered towards freedom of the oppressed. Um, and and it's, so it's a political death that he, that he goes to the cross committed to this radical liberative love. Um, and I think that's the kind of message that, that radical leftist Christians are clinging to. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. And I mean, I think the point that you made initially, uh, which is that there are many different ways of interpreting the gospel, uh, including right-wing ways, uh, and people need to own the legacy of that is extremely important. Uh, you know, it's worth noting that John C. Calhoun, uh, the vice president of the United States, staunch defender of the South, often appeal to not just religious imagery, but religious arguments and examples in the Bible to support the institution of slavery. 
Uh, on the other hand, of course, we have MLK uh, and the various leaders of the civil rights movement, often emerging uh, in a kind of Southern Baptist uh, tradition that mobilized the resources, uh, imagery, and spirituality of the Bible to stand against racism uh, and tyranny and oppression, right? So there's this constant battle, I would say, uh, in trying to save uh, the emancipatory message of the Gospels from the temptations of sovereignism uh, and this kind of calcification or fetishization uh, of power. Speaking of which, uh, at the moment, uh, there's obviously a very strong Christian right in the United States. Some would even say a kind of burgeoning uh, or aggressive Christian right. Uh, and its leading intellectual edge is often perceived to be the so-called post-liberal movement. Uh, now, this is complicated and some of our listeners might know about this, but broadly speaking, uh, post-liberals tend to emerge out of a right-wing Christian, typically Catholic uh, kind of environment. Uh, and they argued that even the kind of capitalist-friendly liberalism uh, that we see in the United States right now isn't going far enough, uh, that we want the United States to emulate a country more like Poland or Hungary, uh, you know, with their kind of quasi-authoritarian governments, their strong restrictions on immigration, particularly immigration from Islamic countries, uh, and the enforcement of a very socially conservative uh, kind of outlook. Can you tell us why you think post-liberalism appeals to so many on the Christian political right, and how can a Christian left confront it intellectually? Since, of course, that's what we're trying to do here on this podcast, amongst other things. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, I could just be really lazy, Matt, and just say, like, uh, rather than listen to me, just read anything that you or Sam Adler Bell or Matt Sitman had to say about these things. <laughs> <That's>, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've had a few. I've taken a few shots at them, that's for sure. But So I think there are a lot of things we could say here. Um, Obviously, the phenomenon of, of post-liberalism, which, as you say, is is overwhelmingly kind of a Catholic um, anti-liberalism, um, is, is emergent. It's constantly changing. Um, it's a project certainly on the move. Um, but I think one thing I've noted about it is that, you know, it, it, it partakes of um, a common strain of conservative Catholicism. Uh, which is that it's a reaction to the kind of trauma of secularism and modernity, um, the loss of religious consensus, the loss of strong authority, a sort of um, solid place in the world. But, you know, as Freud would say, trauma is usually unspoken, right? It's repressed. So it rears its head in morbid and unrecognized ways. And I think that certainly this, this Catholic post-liberalism is a kind of morbid symptom of capitalism, exactly how we can talk about that. Um, first, I think it's important to say it often goes unnoticed, although you have certainly uh, pinpointed this in your pieces on the Catholic post-liberals, but it goes unnoticed, I think, just how reliant post-liberalism is on liberalism and modernity. and. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's almost a parasitic relationship uh, in the sense that post-liberals define themselves so strenuously uh, by basically saying, um, like the Arctic Monkeys once did, you know, whatever it is that they are, we're not. Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, and, and, and again, so I, you know, I would say the post-liberals aren't stupid in this respect, right? Although they do seem to be, you know, unable to stop saying stupid things on social media. That's true. But at the same time, I, I don't know about you, but I, I find a sort of like mendacity, a sort of willful ignorance about just how shaky their whole project is, like on intellectual and theological grounds, right? And I think you grasp that. Um, so I think it, it's important to kind of mine these vulnerabilities and these contradictions, 
I think one of the reasons um, that it can seem so mendacious and willfully ignorant is that it is first and foremost a movement of reaction, like in the sense that Corey Robin talks about, right, in his book, The Reactionary Mind. That is, it's a movement of largely elite academics, theologians, and um, I guess you could say wonks, right, that are fundamentally animated by a desire to repopularize private power in the face of the volatility of capitalism. Um, I think one of the clearest examples of, of the way this, this comes up is the way that post-liberals oddly talk about the elite layers of politics and culture, right? Trying to portray themselves um, and a figure like, for instance, Donald Trump, right? As, as outsiders speaking for a you know, quiet majority of kind of white working class folks, traditional folks. Um, against like these elite layers of media and politics and Hollywood and the university and things like that, which is just a wildly, um, I think, incorrect analysis of the way things actually work in America. Though certainly it does leverage some, you could say, some vulnerable points of liberalism, right? It, it, it's, I think, inarguable that there are profound problems with the captivity of these, let's call them elite layers of politics and culture because of capitalism, right? Um, but but to make these claims, right, that 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 in fact the post liberals are speaking from the outside, right, as part of this real majority of America, right, that's attempting to retake the totalitarian takeover of like woke elite technocrats, right, everywhere. I think this is very very silly. Um, now th that that said, um, I do think we should take notice of how close some of this rhetoric is to strands of Christian anti capitalism. And I would also kind of almost put that in air quotes, more like Christian critiques of like consumerism, right? Right. And long. I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, one of the problems, of course, they're not necessarily structurally uh, opposed to capitalism. Uh, they're opposed to excessive liberal permissiveness. Right. Uh, and to the extent consumer culture maps onto that, they might be critical of some market outcomes and say the stakes are constrained them. Uh, but they're not really not in favor of confronting the power of capital in any sustained way. Uh, transforming social relations by moving to a different economic system. None of that is of much interest to them. Let's just put it that way. That's right. Uh, this is something that you targeted really well, Matt, in your piece on Paul Tillich's uh, little known book, or at least li too little known uh, book, The Socialist Decision, right? Um, there was a discussion there, what exactly uh, the relationship is of capitalism to freedom, right? And I think one of the things that, that really sets the post-liberals apart and, and puts them uncomfortably close, I think, to a lot of Christians that espouse a kind of third way anti-capitalism, right? It could be in the forms of like distributism, um, corporatism, things like that. Um, the, the real concern is rooted in anxieties about liberalism, not capitalism per se, right? And so when it comes to the question of freedom, which is something liberalism offers, right, in a kind of radical way, at least at the level of ideas, uh, the problem for post-liberals is not that capitalism makes us too unfree, right? That's the, the leftist critique, that a capitalism certainly creates conditions for freedom, but it systemically blocks them, right, under the rule of capital. Uh, the problem for post-liberals is that capitalism has actually made us too free, right? And so um, th th this is really rooted in, it, in its anxiety, its resentment towards liberalism, I think. That's where the real object of critique is. And so as you rightly pointed out, they're perfectly happy to make certain kind of critiques of capitalism, though they rarely use that term itself, but they might critique corporations, right? The domination of corporations. Um, they may engage in a little bit of um, 
you know, uh, sort of critique of the lack of labor unions, right? Um, they may valorize the, the needs of workers, even use terms like the working class. Um, but in the end... Yeah, that's where Obamari has been on a tear that way. Recently. Yes. And for this reason, I, this is why Sam Bell is right, I think, to call them like the labor curious <laughs> post-liberals, right? They have a certain curiosity about uh, the the working laboring classes, and, and they're willing to even engage in some rhetoric about supporting those classes. But in their minds, what they're hearkening back to is not the working class as it actually exists, right? Uh, they're, they're, they're hearkening back to a working class that in their minds was solidly centered in you know, male breadwinning families and the manu- manufacturing industries, right? And so what they're seeking, again, is not so much the dignity of labor, right? Strong working class rights, uh, union power. What they want to do is advocate for labor insofar as it repristinates, right, a kind of older male white working class. And and this is where I think post-liberalism becomes actually, as we both can probably agree, dangerous in some ways, right? It's participating in certain far-right discourses, right, about what's wrong with America, and has shown itself to be quite happy to cozy up with authoritarian leaders, politicians, not just in America, but across the world. Um, So I think, you know, um, again, what we're dealing with here and what leftists have to be super clear about, especially Christian leftists, because, again, you've pointed this out, Matt, in your writing, um, we have to make a careful, nuanced case in support of the emancipatory dimensions of liberalism as anti-capitalists, right? We cannot make the reactionary move of trying to get behind liberalism, which is exactly what post-liberals try to do, is to chuck it, even though they may be secretly reliant on it in ways they're not willing to admit, right? Or foreground. Um, But, you know, uh, as as Matt Sittman, I believe, has said before, you know, for socialists, we want to go directly through liberalism and radicalize it, right? We want to make it good on its promises. Post-liberals want to get behind it, right? In order to regress or at least to forcibly introduce, um, you know, a more homogenous social order, right? That excludes what they see as, um, you know, depraved and licentious forms of like sexual life, right? And, um, you know, the, the, the problem of like, you know, transgender bathrooms, things like that, right? Their critique is solidly focused on that. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things uh, Sam Adler, amongst others, pointed out that if you skim through uh, any number of their text, yeah, every now and then, uh, as you put it, you'll find some labor light uh, or working class light uh, kind of curiosity. Uh, well, they'll say a nice thing about unions and say some bad things about tech companies. Uh, but if you add up all the words that they'll write uh, talking about why it is that we should reconfigure the relationship between capitalists and the working class, and you compare that to all the worlds they'll fixate on transgender bathrooms, uh, there's really no comparing the two, right? Uh, throw in the stuff about, you know, them being opposed to the so-called gay agenda. Uh, and it's just, you know, mountains next to molehills. And that really should give you a sense of what it is that they're prioritizing in my opinion. That's um, right, Matt. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and and just the last thing I would say here maybe is, is again, I want to point out that there's a, there is a certain intelligence to post-liberalism in the sense that like other right-wing populist discourses and far-right discourses and movements, it's able to kind of cynically leverage the failures of liberalism. Like there are real gaping failures of liberalism insofar as it supports and protects the interests of capital, right? Uh, it has real failures to realize its own promises, right? Um, post-liberals will um, step in and say, 
Feminism itself is the problem, right? Redressing racial inequality itself is the problem. Transgenderism, as they call it derogatively, is out of control. And we're at the brink of the destruction of the nuclear family and all these things. And these are very silly, silly things, right? But but they are um, they are zeroing in on something that's very important, right? The fact that capitalism constrains and configures liberalism, right? So, you know, for instance, uh, you know, many um, households with a woman and a man, right, that are, that, are, that, are, that are at the head of the household are still profoundly unequal in terms of wages and access to the workplace and family care and things like that. Um, you know, the, the, the disparities of race across almost all lines are still very pronounced, if not more than they were during the civil rights era. Um, transgender folks are still widely oppressed, right? Uh, violence is committed against them at outrageous rates. And so these are silly claims to make, but, but you know, there's a sense in which um, liberalism has valorized like the abstract, you know, causes of feminism, racial equality, uh, queer liberation, right? But it's not able to actually make material good on those things, right? And so post-liberals step into that gap and say, no, 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 the whole problem is feminists and racial justice and things like that. What we want to say, of course, is that we've barely achieved the kind of substantive progress we need around those things, right? It's not enough to just acclaim them and put them, you know, uh, in, in like, you know, um, but, you know, it's, it's not enough to simply acclaim them in the classroom. Uh, it's not enough to simply, um, you know, uh, announce that you're on indigenous land, right? These things have to be made materially um, present, right? Uh, actual justice has to be achieved here. And very often liberalism itself under the rule of capital is unable to do these things. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, and in many senses, I've seen a lot of my own projects uh, as being saving liberalism from capitalism, or at least what's best in liberalism from capitalism. Uh, I mean, obviously, there are some people who are reticent to embrace that project, but I think it can be achievable. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Who knows? But I mean, th that actually is a good segue to my last kind of big picture question, uh, which is, I think that most of our listeners will think that's an admirable project. Definitely, there's a need for a kind of Christian left to counteract the influence of the Christian right, whether it's post-liberalism or otherwise. Uh, but there will definitely be at least a few people who are skeptical the whole way down. Uh, and you, know, you can think about this classical Marxist critique, uh, which holds that religion is an ideological opiate for the masses um, and you know the heart of a heartless world, as he puts it. Uh, and the argument made by people who really internalize at least a kind of crude version of this critique is that religion will only ever reinforce a kind of ideological complacency in the face of oppression at best, uh, or will help people graduate towards reactionary movements at worst. So how can you convince them uh, that there is something of value to a radical revolutionary movement uh, and it's sustainable in the face of the kind of immense pressures uh, that many religious people and others uh, face under neoliberalism? Great question. Uh, I can't I can't claim to convince any of your listeners. That would be a very long conversation. Um, it, it you know it's it's you're right that it's a long standing. Well, dare I say it? You convert our listeners, right? Yeah, yeah, right, right. Um, it's a long standing line of criticism. It's one that in fact has I think a lot of power. Um, and so I think you'd find among a lot of people that work at ICS or our collaborators with us, some basic appreciation for Marx. And indeed, you'd find many Marxists among us. Um, and I count myself as a kind of Marxist. Um, 
you know, I think one thing to say is that certainly the the whole um, image of opiate has often been misunderstood, right? Um, Marx didn't have a lot of sympathy for religion, certainly not Christianity. Um, but, you know, he was an absolute solidarity with the proletariat, right? And so his analysis of the role of religion um, for the proletariat is, you know, far more nuanced than, say, the kind of reactionary criticisms of, like, Richard Dawkins or Daniel. Oh, absolutely. I mean, again, I, I foregrounded the heart of a heartless world part of that quote for that reason, right? Uh, in the sense that he's not saying this is just an opiate. Uh, in a context where people are exploited and have very little to live for, this can provide a tremendous sense of meaning uh, for them, and it's not to be taken lightly, is the sense in which I read his text. Yep, yep, that's right, that's right. Um, yeah, precisely right. And, and, and this is also why, you know, he, he writes uh, later that, you know, that religious suffering is an expression of, of real suffering, right? So he, he calls on people, um, or at least says, you know, basically to call on people to give up their illusions about their actual condition uh, is to call on them to give up the condition that requires illusions, right? What Marx is engaged here in here, I think, is ideology critique, right? He's interested in the way that religion um, helps to rationalize and to justify the way that the social order works. And I would say Marx, in the way he describes much of religion in the Germany that he inhabits, is, you know, 98% spot on, <laughs> I have to say. Um, but I think, yeah, I think we need to ask, um, you know, whether Marx is engaged here in a critique of what Christians would call God or whether he's engaged here in a critique of an idol, right? Um, and I think many Christians would happily agree uh, that, um, you know, for one, atheism is an essential um, dialogue partner for Christians. Um, it's important, I think, that we learn to um, radicalize our notion of God by getting rid of idols, that especially idols that help to portray God in a way that um, justifies the status quo, right? Very often conceptions of God uh, go right along with a conception of social order, justice, revolution, things like that. What's possible and impossible, right, in the order of justice. I mean, absolutely. I mean, just to segue on that, uh, Terry Eagleton wrote a very good book where I pointed out that in many ways, uh, Marx's critique of commodity fetishism joins a long history uh, of Christian and Jewish critiques of idolatry, right? Uh, and the way that that can be a, a tool uh, to re-entrench different power dynamics in That's society. That's right. I mean, Christians have a name for this God, as do many other monotheists, and that, that name is Mammon, <laughs> um, yeah. right? Um, and, and actually, yes, th th that's right. Commodity fetishism is something that Marx, uh, he employs somewhat re religious terms to actually talk about that. Um, there's also the category of what Mar Marx calls abstract value, right? And, and so like the commodity and the abstract value certainly function as a kind of, of, of God, right? A kind of, kind of mystified God that gives order to the universe, um, and especially in the workplace, right? Um, but yeah, I think I think for Christians, we have a very different idea of who God is, right? That, that, that one is, again, drawn from the Hebrew scriptures and the gospel. Um, the Dominican friar Herbert McCabe, you know, talks about how the greatest insight of the Hebrew people was realizing that God um, is not a God, <laughs> right? Uh, and that, the, that he is not a fundamental justification for an oppressive social order. Um, the social order of the Old Testament was rooted in the emancipation of slaves, right, from Pharaoh's political economy. Um, and Christians say that we come to know who God is 
from what happens to him under colonial Roman powers when they torture him and murder him, right? Um, so I think it's it's really important to, to highlight here that um, there is a God of capitalism. There is a God of slaveholder religion. There is a God of nationalism, but it's certainly for Christians, not the God of Jesus, right? Um, and, and, and so, yeah, I, I think there's, there, there's a lot more dialogue here to be done. I mean, one of the things that we're trying to do at the bias and the ICS is to actually revive older conversations among people who might identify as our, you know, Orthodox Marxists, uh, communists, uh, there, there was a, there was a, a huge explosion of conversation and dialogue, both in America and across the world, um, you know, uh, during the, the, the global communist revolutions that put Christianity and communism and Marxism in conversation in a very productive way. And I think the fact that kind of the new atheism has sucked all the air out of the room. Right. And in some cases, actually, given, I think, non-religious or atheist Marxists a little too much fodder to fight religious folks. I think the, na the, the nature and the state of that conversation is very impoverished. I also think we should point out, too, that, that um, globally speaking, especially in the global South, right, um, it just is a non-starter, I think, to say that religion can't play an important part, right, in the radicalization of people's politics. And in some sense, it's a very abstract critique because uh, people derive immense uh, energy, I think, and inspiration for socialist and radical and progressive causes all over the world. ICS is one of those examples. We're trying to contribute to that and revive it. Um, so I, I think also on material grounds, given the, like the state of uh, Christianity and politics across the globe, it, it's kind of a non-starter for anybody who wants to build a real global leftist movement, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, uh, for those of our listeners who are interested, um, of course, looking at the liberation theology tradition, uh, particularly coming out of Latin America, would be a very important place, I think, for starting to learn about how some of these dialogues can be productively uh, engaged in. Uh, or uh, you can take a look at Paul Tillich's The Socialist Decision, uh, which I think is one of the best books written in a Protestant uh, context on the subject. So listen, uh, Aaron, I really appreciate that you coming on. Uh, I just have one last question for you, which is, what do you think is next uh, for ICS and the bias? Uh, where do you see yourself as going? What would you hope to do in a couple of years? Uh, and is there anything interesting uh, that'll be coming out in the near future? Yeah, I sure hope so. <laughs> yeah, I can speak to that. Um, I, I, the the um, most important development for ICS uh, is the uh, launch of our membership program. So in October, we launched a uh, membership program that um, uh, sort of uh, is modeled around uh, many different grassroots experiments. Um, over the last decades and even hundreds of years where Christians have gathered and organized at the grassroots in spiritual and political communities to affect, to affect change and practice forms of economic democracy. Um, and so uh, what we're doing is gathering people as members into what we call base societies. This does actually harken back to the earlier Latin American base communities. And we're putting people into small groups that are organized around uh, a training curriculum, spiritual exercises, and organizing practices. And th this is to make good on our mission, which is to organize Christians, right? Not just to ask them to find other people to advocate for them or to mobilize around short-term causes, but to actually build a grassroots movement over time that we hope in the next couple of years will be in the thousands. Um, and um, so I would encourage people who are interested in getting to know other Christian socialists um, and who want to actually form community, Christian anti-capitalist community, to check that out. Uh, that's easily uh, found at our website on the membership page. Um, that's where we're looking to actually grow a movement, Matt. So that's the most important thing and the most exciting thing of the last year. 
Um, also, we're developing more media, so we'll have a number of new podcasts coming out of ICS. Um, and the bias is actually launching a few series um, this year. Uh, one will look at figures of the Christian left, so resourcing people that may be a little less known uh, on the Christian left uh, and doing profiles of them so people can get to know what this Christian socialist tradition is, locate themselves in it, and then um, uh, be inspired by their examples. Um, we're also going to be um, uh, engaging in a couple of long analyses of how Christians are currently engaging in anti-capitalist politics, especially with a lot of focus on some of the insufficient ways they're doing that. And then we're also working in a project to republish older and lesser known works from the Christian left over the past hundred years. There's a lot of little known material that's uh, you know out of copyrights, just waiting to be republished and represented to the public. So we're planning to use the bias as a space for that. Um, Otherwise, I would say people should definitely check out our website, christiansocialism.com. Uh, we really want people to join us in this crucial work. It doesn't happen without people. And we're trying to build a responsive institution that actually we can um, give others access to, right? We talk a lot about ICS exists for the people that are involved in it. In some sense, it's really theirs. Uh, and we want to be able to equip them and resource them and organize them to start affecting change in their churches and communities. So christiansocialism.com is where we're at. If you're interested in supporting us, there's also a support page there. You can subscribe to our newsletter. And we're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Okay, well, thanks a lot. Uh, so that's Aaron Anderson, everyone. Uh, do check out uh, IC the ICS website and the Bias magazine. Uh, as Aaron mentioned, I've been known to uh, have a piece come out there every now and then as well. Uh, so if you're interested in that, you can check it out. Uh, but, you know, thanks a lot for coming here, man. And I hope for the best. Uh, in the, your organization's future, because I really think this is an extremely important mission. Uh, if anything, it's probably more vital now than it has been in many, many decades, given how nasty uh, some of these right-wing Christians happen to be. Awesome, man. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having me on. 